welcome to the National Capital Bible Church this morning. This morning is communion service. It's always our first of the month, and so this is always a pleasure to remember our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. We always take just a few seconds here at the National Capital Bible Church for spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation includes simply silently having a conversation with the Father, confession of sins, and also focusing on the, the service. So let's take just a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and then I will open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together as a church family, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember, as the Apostle Paul tells us, to remember the Lord's Supper. We're thankful that we have the guidance that Paul has given us in 1 Corinthians 11. And we're thankful, Father, for the reason for the remembrance, and that is your extraordinary love for us that sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to go to the cross for us and to redeem us from our sins. We're thankful for the extraordinary grace policy that makes salvation so simple. Simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. And as we remember the reason this morning for our our great salvation. We ask, Father, for your blessing upon us. We pray that God the Holy Spirit would guide us and help us to truly concentrate on the reason for the Lord's Supper. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Hal. Always enjoy the songs that go along with our our services, they're uh, in themselves part of our worship. And uh, if we are focused on the words, they carry a remarkable message. I'd like for us to turn this morning just briefly to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a passage that I quote as we begin our communion service. And it's one of the passages that tells us of the, the unblemished condition of our Lord and Savior as he goes to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, For he, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as we read this, again, one of the challenges that we have is our pronouns. And we see that he, the first he, is God the Father. This is God the Father's plan for redemption for us. For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Therefore, 
we no longer, when it comes to our relationship with the Father, we no longer are faced with this barrier of sin because the Lord Jesus Christ at the, at the cross resolves and removes that barrier. And it is now simply understanding who the Lord Jesus Christ is and believing in his sacrificial work for us on the cross. For he, the Father, made him the Son, who knew no sin. He was sinlessly perfect. He was impeccable. Who knew no sin, but he took upon the guilt that was uh, should have been attributed to us. But he takes that sin on himself, that we might become the righteousness of God, God the Father, in him, the Son. And the righteousness here, of course, is the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness, having gone without sin, and his righteous performance on the cross is now seen instead of our unrighteousness. And this is one of those remarkable passages that should be of great comfort to us. Because we realize that every day, as fallen creatures, we sin. But we have the opportunity, of course, to confess those sins. And 1 John 1, 9 tells us that that if we confess our sins, He, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And once more, the Father sees the righteousness of Christ, who has paid for all of our sins. The Lord's table, the Lord's table, uh, as we find in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, he was not one of the disciples, and therefore we believe that the Apostle Paul receives this information from the Father or from uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is because of this we have a ritual that we follow for the communion service. It was on the night before his crucifixion that the Lord wanted to ensure that uh, believers would understand what was going to happen at the cross and not only understand what was going to happen at the cross, but that we would more, he would memorialize it by saying, no longer are you going to uh, refer to the Passover Israelites' departure from Egypt, but from now on, you are going to focus on me and my work, my finished work on the cross. We have the elements then. And the elements, first of all, is the bread. And the bread is the person of Christ in his sinlessness. We are told that he was without sin, and the night that he uh, had his evening meal, the Passover, was what they were celebrating. Uh, He takes the bread, and the bread he breaks. He breaks the bread. This was their tradition. And we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ broke off a piece of the bread and then passed it, and each one of the disciples had the opportunity to do the same so that they would have the the bread and the bread is an indication 
or represents. It's the symbol of his sinlessness. And I show the what is generally considered to be a very innocent lamb. And that's what John the Baptist declared when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. The other element is the cup, the work of Christ, his spiritual death on the cross. The cup is generally a, a reddish beverage that reminds us of death, blood of death. And the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the cross, and it's upon the cross that he, he is sacrificed for us. And it is the cup that brings that thought to us, his actual payment for sin on the cross for us. The eating and drinking of the bread and the cup is an indication of faith in the person and the work of Christ. And it's important for us to remember that the elements and the service itself is important for Christians. If you're an unbeliever in the Lord Jesus Christ, the communion service has no significance for you. And we believe that it is a, uh, a memorial service so that these, the bread and the cup, are symbols of what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished and did for us on the cross. Eating and drinking is an indication of faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a warning, and the warning is that we should not take the communion service. We should not participate in the Lord's Supper with uh, existing sins and therefore the warning is that we must confess our sins prior to the taking of the elements and therefore uh, even though we began our service with confession this is an opportunity for us once more to ensure that we have confessed our sins and not only that but it helps us to begin our concentration on the service the meaning of the communion. And it's very easy for us to have our minds drift and to be thinking about something that's happened earlier in the day or something that is happening later in the day or something or some distraction that's ongoing in the church. But it's important for us to focus on the elements and the meaning of the elements Therefore, let's take a few seconds, closing our eyes and bowing our heads. And in a few seconds, I will open us in prayer. And at this time, I'd like to ask the deacons to come forward. Dearly Father, we are thankful that we have this opportunity. And we're thankful for the elements. We're thankful for the significance of them. And I'll ask David, David to give thanks for the bread. Once more, as we take this wafer, uh, sometimes it's uh, a bit of cracker, sometimes it's just a little wafer as we're using here. It is, the significance of it is to remember the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as he goes to the cross. 
That same night, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, this same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this, bu- this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And I'll ask, I now will ask Bill to give thanks for the cup. We're told again by the Apostle Paul that he said in the same manner, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this communion service. We're thankful for what it represents. We're thankful not only for your extraordinary love for us in sending your Son, but the effectiveness of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It was a perfect sacrifice. And it was not uh, simply a, a picture of what what was happening, but it was the actual payment, the redemption of the entire world. But it takes, of course, believing, having faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross to receive eternal life, imputed righteousness, and a remarkable eternal future. Father, we're thankful again that we had this opportunity. We ask for your blessing upon it. We pray that it will be truly significant to us, reminding us when we have these services, reminding us of the remarkable plan and the effectiveness of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been studying 1 Corinthians, and we were about to move to 1 Corinthians 2, but today, not so fast. I have a special for us, and the special is this week I will be down along with Hal at the Chafer Theological Seminary Conference, and I have been asked to make a presentation. The presentation, I believe, has now been established for Tuesday in the afternoon, although sometimes those can Uh, uh, vary depending upon, I guess you could say, the whim of those who schedule these events. But my topic, and I think I have it right here, is socialism and the Bible. As a matter of fact, the, the conference is going to be focused very much on, I guess I could say, current events or what's happening uh, in the United States right now. And my presentation is not so much focused on socialism, but the Bible. And that's the way I prefer to understand this. The, the importance 
of what I'm going to say is probably going to be, could be encapsulated uh, under maybe five uh, different major uh, points. And we will not have the opportunity today for me to review all of those because uh, at the at the conference I'm given an hour for a presentation and then 15 minutes for questions and answers. Many very shrewd uh, presenters take the 15 minutes as part of their presentation and then in the last minute say, does anybody have any questions? And then say, okay, no questions, let's pray. Well, uh, usually most, and I think this happens all the time, presenta- uh, presenters prepare much more than they have the time to, to present, particularly if they take the time to expound on what they're saying. But let me begin with an introduction. I don't have any slides on the introduction, but the introduction is going to be something similar to this, that it's been said, well, excuse me, our nation has recently passed through a very contentious presidential election. It is clear that socialism is, in fact, gaining popularity in America. Recent polls show that a majority of Democrat-leaning respondents view socialism very positively. And a 2019 YouGov poll showed that 70% of millennials would vote for a socialist presidential candidate. And more than 30% think highly of communism. There is a view towards globalism and international solutions. And so this is the world in which we live, which is uh, dramatically changed over the last 50 years. The World Economic Forum promoted the idea that the election slogan, to build back better, means we must reinvent capitalism. So capitalism is not, in some cases, it's not considered to be moral. As a matter of fact, even immoral. So it needs to be reinvented. How? Well, it's a fundamental, uh, it's a fundamentally socialistic system, putting the collective in control of most economic activity and imposing a number of social justice reforms meant to what's known as rebalancing, rebalance economies and then redistributing wealth around the world. So it seems timely to ask ourselves if there's a biblical viewpoint supporting socialistic policies or ideas. And that's where I'm going to go now. I have, well, I may use some more of my sort of background. There's some background inf- uh, information that I'll that I'll use, but the main, the meat, I guess you could say, the main part of my presentation focuses on passages of Scripture. Continuing my introduction, it's been said that socialism 
will solve the problems of the world, that there will be free housing, free education, free health care, free public transportation, free child care, guaranteed jobs if you want one, paid vacations, free welfare for all the poor. And I think you'll notice that the key word there is free. It's free. Some of us have heard the comment that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, that's not the philosophy of socialism. It all sounds so wonderful. Socialism would be a perfect, would usher in a perfect society. And who would not be in favor of a perfect society? There is only one big question. Will socialism deliver on its promises? Will this uh, idyllic dream be different from its historical and current reality? And why do I say that? It's because socialism has failed wherever it has been tried, depending upon the vigor of the socialistic policies. promise of socialism is that no one will be left behind because the government, in fact, would assure equality for all. Maybe in a perfect world, some degree of equality might be approachable. But in an imperfect world, equality is simply impossible. Sadly, the large number of people fall for the promise of equality and that the government can and will deliver it. The deception of socialism continues even though in every place it is found, it perpetuates poverty. It restricts freedom, and it brings a depressing malaise. What is socialism? Well, there are various definitions, but essentially it is the primacy of the state over the individual. It is when the government dominates or controls the means of production and promises to spread the wealth in what is claimed to be an impartial way. The question that is never clearly answered as we be, if as they begin the socialistic policies is who decides the impartial way. When the topic of socialism arises, <clears throat> one of the luminaries, Karl Marx, often takes center stage. His vision of socialism takes the author's name of Marxism. And again, there are several different types of socialism, but one of them, of course, follows Karl Marx's policies. Classic Marxism was based on humanistic social science and economics, industrialism, and state ownership of the means of production. This type of Marxism was not successful and was certainly resisted by most of the populace. Therefore, a new type of Marxism was developed. It's called cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism is a creeping change of the national culture through academia, entertainment, media, and even religion. Cultural Marxism has merged with the left, adopting adopting post-modernism, multiculturalism, environmentalism, racism, and identity politics, all of which are designed to engulf a society 
and create a new culture. Marx's philosophy was based first on the belief that materialism is the final reality. And this is where Christianity or more broadly religion is addressed. So Marx's philosophy was based first on the belief that materialism is the final reality. This means that there is no God and there is no human soul that survives death of the body. Secondly, he believed that economic forces propel history ever onward and forward. And thirdly, Marx believed that private property is the source of evil. So that in a perfect world, there is no ownership of property. Why? Because you wouldn't need it. The government is going to be in control. Since Marx did not believe in God, he rejected the Bible and opposed Christianity. He viewed Christianity as a source of oppression. He believed that God, as presented by the Bible, was an oppressor who kept people enslaved to unfair social restrictions. It was Marx who said that religion was the opium or the drug of the people. Therefore, he wanted people to switch their devotion from church to pendency on the state. And one of the words that we need to understand or at least uh, be prepared to hear is statism. Socialism is built upon statism. However, if God is removed from life's equation, then basic human rights do not come from God. From where do they come? The state. The state makes decisions regarding human rights. Furthermore, if the state is the entity giving the rights, then the state cannot be criticized. And that's where we very often find ourselves. Uh, you cannot criticize the government. As a matter of fact, closing down communication and the ability to communicate is very often part of it. The changes Marx envisioned were the removal of the close, closely knit family, fathers released from the responsibility of the family, oppressed mothers freed from the home to work for the state, children to be raised by the government approved schools. Parents would not shape the minds of their children. The family unit was no longer to be understood as an autonomous economic unit of society. Communal housing would replace private housing. And this is all part of socialism as it progresses through other isms. Now, what I would like to do is move to, I would like to, to go simply to the biblical passages that I have that I've prepared or I will be teaching. The question I think that we could answer or ask is what does the Bible say about socialism? Periodically, someone remarks that the Bible supports socialism, but this is not true. There are numerous passages in Scripture that refute the socialistic position. However, there are people who use certain biblical passages to support socialism, but we see that they are mistaken. Therefore, let me begin with, uh, I'll try to choose, I actually have, I think, somewhere in the vicinity of 14 passages here. Might have to cut some of them short as we go. But let me begin, first of all, with what does 
the Bible say about socialism? Well, first of all, God has a requirement for work in the garden. He provides this. And this is found in Genesis 2.15. Very often, we'll find through welfare and other government uh, programs, work is a four-letter word. Well, it is a four-letter word. So we'll move to labor. Labor, we could say. Labor is biblical. In Genesis 2.15, one of the very first requirements that God gives to mankind is to work, to be what we would say is gamely, uh, gamefully employed. Verse 15 of chapter 2, Genesis. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. Uh, the word tend here uh, can be understood to mean to serve. It also has, of course, the sense of working, laboring in the garden. And then keep it. Shamar is our Hebrew word there. It means to guard it. We could say to protect. But keep it is, I think, uh, an excellent translation because it became the responsibility of the man because we believe at this point the woman is not quite, has not been uh, created yet. She will be created from the man later in that day. I believe this is the sixth day. So we see that labor is biblical. It is a principle that was established in the garden by the Creator. Prior to the fall, man was given work. He was, what? To tend and to keep. And therefore, labor was a requirement. It was a requirement prior to the fall, and after the fall, it remained part of life. Uh, uh, albeit it would be more difficult, we would say. We would do well to obey the guidance found in Proverbs, and that is the industriousness of the ant. This is one of my favorite passages, and I just slipped this in at the, the backside of this point. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Proverbs 6.6. 6. We are to be industrious. We are to be devoted. We are to have initiative. And socialism erodes all of those. Secondly, second passage. The Mosaic Law prohibited the sinful attitude of greed and coveting. And socialism is based upon that. Exodus 20:17. Exodus 20:17. The, Mos- the Mosaic Law prohibited the sinful attitude of greed and coveting. 20:17. Exodus 20:17. This is the last commandment. Exodus 20:17 and periodically it's called the final mandate, the last of the 10 commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. But socialism builds on greed. It, we could say, is repulsed by inequality. 
And the desire is to make equality. And how do you do that? You, you have to compare what someone has to what someone else doesn't have. So the final mandate of the Ten Commandments addresses the attitude of greed and covetousness. Moses gives God's list of what was strictly prohibited and concluded the prescription of coveting with the phrase, nor anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, this fits very nicely with uh, an admonition from my mother. As I was growing up, we would be at the table, the dinner table, supper table, and periodically uh, there would be maybe a vegetable or something there that I was not particularly interested in consuming. And uh, mother would say, Dan, eat your carrots, which I happen to love now, but maybe not at the time. And I'd say, well, look at Rick over here. He's not eating his carrots. And John over there, he's not eating his carrots. Keep your eyes on your own plate. Socialism doesn't require you to keep your eyes on your own plate. As a matter of fact, it is a system of trying to equal what everybody has. The commandment against coveting was essentially a prohibition of greed or lusting for something that belonged to someone else. In this commandment, God recognized the inequality of success, possessions, or anything that was associated with another person. God was requiring individuals to be content with what they had, not dissatisfied with what they did not have. In other words, they would be lusting for something that someone else possessed. Socialism is based on greed, the desire to have the success, wealth, or possessions of others. In fact, socialism questions the judgment of God, who has provided the positions, the possessions of each person. Remember that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Socialism promotes greed, envy, lust, and coveting. And therefore, it is not taught by the Bible. What does the, the Bible say about socialism? Three. Always, this is a wonderful passage. King Lemuel exemplifies wisdom as a virtuous wife. And we find this in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, 10, 31, a passage that, um, unfortunately, we don't visit as often as we should. It's the last chapter of Proverbs, the last chapter of Proverbs, and I think it's often misunderstood, but uh, it is taught generally effectively, I think. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. Now, I don't have the time to read all of this text, but beginning in verse 10, uh, we could easily... All right, well, let me read down through at least several of these verses, beginning, beginning in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands, she is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. 
She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She pursues, she perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. That's knitting or uh, uh, weaving. She extols, she extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of snow nor for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tap- tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates where he sits among the elders of the land. Let me uh, stop there. You can see what is happening here. Uh, this is not something that would be promoted by socialism. In the final chapter here in Proverbs, the author, the author captures the theme of wisdom that has been taught in the book and presents them as a virtuous wife. In other words, as you read through that passage, there are a lot of people that would say, well, that's, a, that's perfection. I could never make perfection. Well, this is really, if you read through the book of Proverbs, this is the description of wisdom, and it's presented as a virtuous wife. So wisdom is presented as a woman who provides for her household, considers a field and buys it. From the profits of that sale, she plants a vineyard. She spends clothes for her family, gives to the poor, provides clothes for herself, and makes garments to sell, and has a husband and wife. And remember, I said that one of the tenets of socialism is that we can really need to break down the family so that even the oppressed wife can go to work. All of these activities of the virtuous wife are contrary to socialism. Four, this may be our last passage, but Jesus uses the wealthy in his parables to teach spiritual lessons. And the passages that we we could see are Matthew 21, beginning in 31, or excuse me, 33, 30. We can also see another parable in Matthew 22, 2 through 10, and Matthew 25, 14 through 19. And we can go to these passages, and I'm not going to do that today, but we could go to those passages and we would see that the land owner, the landlord, very often described, owns the land and he provides employment for his employees. So that Jesus often uses parables to teach godly principles. The parables, the parables vary with diverse characters and taught various lessons. Several of these parables use wealthy landowners or other personalities who, in fact, were well-to-do, or you can use the word wealthy. In none of the parables, in none of the parables was there criticism or judgment made towards those who owned land. 
who prospered in business or provided occupation for others, for employees. In fact, often the landowner or the wealthy individual represents God himself. That's who the parable was indicating who was the landowner. It was God who was providing employment for those needing jobs. In none of his parables do we find a hint of socialism. Rather, in the parables and throughout Scripture, we find that private property ownership is encouraged. And so, another example that socialism would not accept these parables. One more passage. Let's go to one more passage. This is our fifth one. Jesus taught about poverty. Matthew 26, 6 through 11. This is not a passage that glorifies poverty. And I'm certainly not going to teach it that way. But in Matthew 26, we see a a remarkable act by a woman who was honoring the Lord. And in Matthew 26, beginning verse 6, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, in other words, he had been a leper, was cleansed, but he still has that title, I guess you could say. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. I'm sure they were really concerned about the poor. Now, I shouldn't say that because they may have been. But uh, this criticism of this woman uh, is uncalled for. Verse 10, what does the Lord say? And again, this isn't to uh, lift up the poor. It's not what this is meant. But Jesus says, but when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For he is, she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. And I'll stop there. What is he saying? Socialism's goal is to lift the poor out of poverty and make everybody equal so that the poor aren't poor. But Jesus told his disciples that the poor would always be with them. Socialism desires income equality, but generally it achieves poverty equality. Jesus knew that there would be classes of society And while providing for the poor was important and godly, his definitive pronouncement to his disciples confirms that there will always be poverty. This assures us that no amount of government programs will eliminate the poor. The biblical principle is that while we hope the best for everyone, in other words, we don't want people in poverty. We hope and we provide through charity, but there will always be those on the lower end of society, and socialism fails 
when it thinks that it can change this. Okay. This is at least the first five cha- uh, first passages of Scripture that I will address. There are a few more. But it's important for us to realize that uh, the Bible is not a socialistic book. It does not teach socialism. Uh, it teaches freedom and liberty an opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And it's important for us to realize that freedom is not encapsulated in socialism. In fact, it destroys freedom. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful for passages that guide us, teach us uh, what we should think and how we should act. And we pray, Father, that the Word of God would be taught in our churches and the absolute truth that can be found in the Word of God guides us honorably and godly in a godly fashion. And we pray, Father, for our nation. We pray that our nation would certainly focus on the principles upon which it was established, established on biblical principles, And we pray, Father, that we would understand that, return to them, and truly focus on God's word, your word, Father. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.